Hey friend, are you struggling to find consistent paid speaking gigs? Do you want to know the exact six steps that you can take to find and book more paid speaking opportunities in 2024? Well, we want to make that easy for you. We've created a new free resource with the help of Dan Irvin, one of our highly successful speakers on our team. Dan has booked over $100,000 in paid speaking gigs in the last few years, and his six-step process is going to help you maximize your chances of getting booked and paid to speak in any industry. You're going to learn how to get started prospecting, master discovery calls, and proposal emails and so much more. All you got to do is go to thespeakerlab.com slash steps and we're going to send you this 18-page guide straight to your inbox. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash steps and you're going to get that free guide. Hey, thanks for listening. You're awesome. Hey, what's up, my friends? Grant Baldwin here. Welcome back to the Speaker Lab Podcast. We are so glad you are here. Glad you're joining us. Hope you're having a great, great day. Uh, Indeed, honored that you're here. Whether you are listening for your first time or you've been listening for all the episodes, uh, you know, still, I I come across people who are like, I've listened to every single episode, which is awesome. Super stoked to hear that and so proud of you. And if you haven't, you you got a lot to catch up on, all right? We are deep into the the podcast here and like 170-some episodes, I don't know, something like that. got a bunch here. So today we got a great guest for you. Before we get to that, let me remind you, if you haven't already, we have a free new training, a brand new training that uh, has just been released that we'd love for you to check out sometime where we are walking through a step-by-step plan on exactly how to find and book paid speaking engagement. So if you haven't checked this out already, we've mentioned this to you before, but definitely stop by Elite speakerworkshop.com elite speakerworkshop.com again that's a brand new training we just released recently super excited about it but definitely check that out again elite speakerworkshop.com all right so today we're talking with Stephen Shapiro who has uh, been speaking for many many years speaks a lot on the topic of innovation speaks to some major major corporations and companies we uh, in this conversation today we're going to talk about how he got his start in speaking how he's built momentum over the years we also talk about uh, a lot about how he differentiates himself as a speaker One of the unique things that Stephen has done well is he really tries to create these experiential keynotes. So whether he's speaking to an audience of of 50 or 5,000, several things that he does to really engage with and interact with the audience. He also uh, has some really creative ways of how he uses technology in presentation. Really, really creative ideas here. So several things that you can uh, incorporate. So uh, lots to get to. Let's get right into it. My uh, conversation with uh, Mr. Stephen Shapiro. Enjoy. What's up, my friends? Grant Baldwin here. Hey, today we're hanging out with Stephen Shapiro, who is a speaker and innovation expert, and I uh, appreciate Stephen taking some time to uh, join us today. Stephen, how are you, man? I'm doing great. Thrilled to be here. Just chatting a little bit beforehand that you're on the road right now. You're kind of making the rounds. Tell us the, the glamorous couple days that you've had and kind of bouncing around where you've been. Yeah, glamorous is the right word. Uh, went from Orlando to Seattle. Of course, that's not a nonstop, so I'm flying through Charlotte with a nice layover there. Then from Seattle to D.C., which was a nice long flight, and then uh, D.C. back to Orlando eventually. You'd think it'd be simpler just to do D.C. and then back to Orlando, like throw out the uh, the Seattle part, because that's the thing that really kind of jacks up the travel side of it. It, it does, but a uh, great client out there had a, just a fantastic time with them, and that makes it worth it. There you go. Well, man, I appreciate you taking time to chat with us. So first of all, let's start with this. Give us a, kind of a, a nutshell overview of what you speak about and who you speak to, and then we'll kind of dig into your backstory. Sure. So, I mean, I've spent my life really talking about innovation uh, and in particular sort of the cultural aspects of innovation and collaboration and disruption inside of large organizations. 
So that's pretty much what I do. It's all I do. And I just travel around and work with clients in pretty much any industry. They typically are larger companies, but any industry. How did you first get into speaking? So I started my life with Accenture and management consulting, spent 15 years there. And I created this 20,000 person practice around process and innovation. And so when you have a practice of 20,000 people, you're flying around talking to these people all the time. And I was given 100 speeches a year at times to Accenture consultants and to clients. And I just realized I love this. And so I uh, managed to start doing more and more of that. And when my first book came out, I left Accenture and started doing it on my own 15 years ago. So what was that transition like then? Because I think there's a lot of of people who may be listening who are in a similar spot of, I've done some speaking. I feel like I'm decent at it. This is a lot of fun. The rush of being on stage for, you know, whatever period of time in front of an audience. And you know, you've got them and you have their attention and you know, you're making some type of dent and impact. And it's hard to compete with anything else like that experience, but it's difficult to go from, I'm doing some speaking internally with this company under their umbrella to, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to march out and do my own thing. So what did that transition look like for you? You know, it's a great question because one of the things which I knew is I knew I was a great speaker. Yeah. But I realized very quickly that being a great speaker does not equate to having a great speaking business because there's all the fundamentals of getting the clients and getting the word out. It was a totally different game. And I was unprepared the first few years to make that transition because I just did not know how to market myself in a way that was going to produce the income that I needed. So I'm curious then, how did you start to figure that out? What were some of those mistakes that you made? Because I think you're exactly right. It reminds me of the book, The E-Myth by Michael Gerber. And he talks about there's a huge difference between, you know, the analogy he uses or the story he tells as a, as a baker. And there's a huge difference between being a baker and running a bakery. And so I find that a lot of speakers, I don't know if you've noticed the same, that a lot of speakers are really, really, really good on stage, but they suck at running the business and they suck at marketing themselves and actually finding speaking opportunities. So how did you start to not only recognize that you're like, okay, I'm, I'm really good on this side and I'm kind of short-sighted on this side and I need to make up the difference there to actually kind of closing that gap and learning how to, to market yourself and, and how to find business. I mean, I got a little bit lucky. So in the early years, I got a couple of clients who carried me through. So I had some nice six-figure deals, which was a combination of consulting and speaking. And then what happened was for me is, first of all, you meet people in the industry who help you understand the industry better. But I think it was really a matter of time and connections. And what I found was the first few years, it it was still slow. And somebody told me, sometimes it just takes 10 years. And I was like, oh, come on. It can't really be taking 10 years to get somewhere. But at 10 years, I'd built such a large network that all of a sudden, the machine started working on its own. And so I think it was really just getting to know a lot of people, getting out there, getting the word out. I don't think it was anything specific. I mean, back in my day, I would say, the things which were most transformative were, I was a very active blogger before blogging was popular. So we're going back 15 years ago. And then I just had a couple of my books have helped. So it was just a series of things over time that I think really helped me out a lot. What do you feel like the the book and the blog did for you? Well, the blog gave me SEO. So I know like even my first gigs, people would just go into Google and you know, look for innovation speaker, innovation consultant. And because my blog had so much content, yeah, uh, it, it got very highly ranked very quickly without me having to do all the SEO, you know, things that people are doing today. It was just sort of a natural result of the work. And then the books just built credibility. One of my big clients, she read my book. And next thing you know, she's recommending to me to every division in the company. And I worked with them for years, uh, doing a lot of work with them. So 
the books were great. And then having a really killer video helped me a lot too. I know in 2009, I did uh, the first major TEDx event for NASA. It was a couple thousand rocket scientists in the audience. And I had six minutes on the stage. So when I posted my six minute full length video, my bookings went through the roof because people saw that and said, if you could do that in six minutes, I can't imagine what you would do in 45. Right, right. So I'm curious, and especially going back to those first couple of years for you, and you mentioned how you realized you were good on stage, but quickly realized that that marketing and finding the business was difficult. It's easy in in that stage to be discouraged, to want to throw in the towel, to figure, ah, this isn't worth it. I'm going to go back to my uh, my gig at Accenture. So what kept you going early on that kept you from quitting? There were times where I wasn't sure I was going to stick it out. I was fortunate enough to be living a very minimalistic lifestyle. So my cost of living was really, really low. I had uh, enough money saved from my Accenture days. So I didn't feel, at least for me, I was fortunate enough that I didn't have to support a large family or I didn't have a large mortgage or anything like that. For me, it was really sort of just living simply was the thing which allowed me to do it. And I just, in my soul, I knew this was what I was meant to do. So I just, I, even though there were times where I wanted to give up, I just, I couldn't. And I think there's a lot of people who would, who would say something similar to the fact, I just feel like I'm supposed to do this and I feel like I'm really good at this, but it's kind of like, you know, there's a huge difference between wanting to do something and actually doing something and having the skill set to do it. So I'm also curious, you, you mentioned that you felt like you were, you were really good at, at the craft of it. What did you feel like made you self-aware enough to realize, okay, I, I can compete at a high level of doing this? Because there's, there's plenty of people who feel like they can do this, but there's you know, a handful of people who may actually be able to do it, and especially at a high level. So what, what gave you the confidence that you, you could do it at a high level? Well, so when I was at Accenture, I was also running some big conferences. So there's one conference that I ran, which was a couple thousand people. And I hired a big name speaker, who $75,000 speaker, and this is going back 20 years. Yeah. So you can imagine what, you know, what level this person is, you know, I was able to present on stage before this person, after this person, we spoke multiple times and people would be like, wow, that was, you know, you were great. So if people think I'm great in comparison to a $75,000 speaker at that time, which is now probably 150,000, that gave me the confidence to at least believe I was good. Yeah. at least good enough. Look, and I've had to polish my, th- I mean, I go back and watch some of my earlier speeches. I'm like, Ooh, that was not <laughs> need to refund that audience. <laughs> yeah. But you get better, more distinctions and more clarity as time goes on as yeah. to what is your style. I tried to make sure I wasn't copying other people's style, which I went through a phase of trying to do that. I want to be like this person. And that, and that bombed every time I did yeah. that. So I just had to be me on stage as big as I can. One of the other things you mentioned was the importance of connecting with other people in the industry and just other speakers and how that helped you early on. And I assume how that continues to help you today. So I'm curious then, what did you do early on to connect with those speakers? Because I think especially early on, and even as you as you progress, there's always going to be speakers who are a few rungs up the ladder that you look up to, you admire, you respect, you want to connect with them, but you're like, I, you know, what do I bring to the table? What do I have to offer? They probably got, they got plenty of speaker friends. What do they need me for? So how did you build those relationships early on? And what do you do today to even continue to connect with other speakers? I'm active in the National Speakers Association. I'm currently on the board of directors. And I've been part of it for basically when I started back in 2001 is when I started getting active. And, you know, I started connecting with some people, but I knew that if I really wanted to get in there, I needed to find a way of getting in. So I found a couple of people in NSA who are the big names. And instead of just trying to saddle up next to them and say, hi, I hired them. 
I hired people not just for what I thought they could do for me in terms of their expertise, but also who they know. And it, it worked beautifully because some of the people I hired, all of a sudden now, I'd go to an NSA event and they introduced me to all the, the, the big players right. at the time, which I might not have had access to. So it was a, a conscious decision to hire people with great networks. What were you hiring? Net- my networks. What were you hiring them to do? Some cases it was like speech coaches, okay. uh, people who helped me improve my speaking. Uh, other cases, it was more business-oriented people, people who'd help me figure out how to structure my business. So just a number of different people. But uh, you know, my goal was to get to know as many people in the speaking industry and in the innovation industry. Look, and they're not my main source of speaking, but it's been a great source of inspiration. It's been a great source of education. And that to me has been very valuable. So you mentioned uh, connecting with other speakers and just being tenacious early on really helped you to build some of that momentum. You mentioned that that speaking is very much a, a momentum business. And oftentimes it just takes a while to get the flywheel going. And once the flywheel is going, then it's a lot easier to maintain. It's a lot easier to, to, to get bookings and to, to continue to get bookings. So I'm curious, is there anything that you do differently today to continue to get bookings versus when you got started? Now I'm doing a lot more with bureaus. So if I look at the amount of work that I'm doing with bureaus, the percentage seems to be increasing over time. And you know, a lot of people are like, well, I don't like working with a bureau because they take a percentage. I love working with bureaus. They're professionals. They handle things. They get me into clients that I wouldn't be able to get into otherwise. And then I try to stay in touch with people. This was a great example just of the relationship I have with some of the bureaus. So one event I did in 2011 for a pharmaceutical company through a bureau. And I asked the, the bureau, I was like, hey, do you mind if we stay in touch with the client, you know, bypassing you basically? And I said, I promise you if anything comes of it, we'll let you know. Well, five years later, this guy that we stayed in touch with got into a new position and wanted to hire me. So I contacted the bureau and said, hey, this guy after five years wants to hire me. That's great. I'll tell you what, we'll cut our commission for this one and a half because you did all the work and we'll come back to normal terms. Well, we had so much spin after that one new event. Yeah. And those are the types of things. So I, I think I'm very trustworthy. You know, Bureau knows that if they work with me, not only will I deliver a great event, but they also know that if there's any spin, they will be involved and I'm going to do anything and everything I can to stay in touch with the clients. So you've been speaking for 15 years. You've done, I assume at this point, hundreds, thousands of, of presentations. You've worked with a lot of big name clients. So at this point, it's a little easier to get in with bureaus. So I always like to give the disclaimer for, for speakers who may say, oh, so it's just, that's all I need to do is just get in with a bureau. And uh, that, that's the golden goose that just lays the eggs. And, and I just got to show up and speak. And, and obviously, you know, your involvement with the NSA, you know, there's plenty of speakers who probably just, all I'm trying to do is get an agent or get a bureau. So can you speak to that for a second on just, uh, especially for speakers who are early on in their business and in their career? of whether or not they should be pursuing a bureau or how a bureau might fit into their business? The challenge with bureaus is they don't want you until you don't really need them. Yep, exactly. I mean, but it's the case with most industries these days. So what I found is the most effective strategy, and I've, I've had some other people use this, is if there's a bureau you really want to get into, find somebody who's working with them already. So I've introduced some of my friends who I trust. I mean, these are people I know will deliver and I've introduced them, but I've also suggested, and this has worked, is if there's a beer you want to get in with, find one of the events that you booked on your own and give that client to a bureau, give them their commission, and now they get to at least have a connection with you. And ideally in a situation where the event is maybe locally and they can potentially come and see you. So I just did an event the other day. This wasn't one where I gave to the bureau, but the bureau was in the audience. 
it's a totally different situation when a bureau doesn't just understand you from client feedback, but actually gets to see you and experience you. That's a totally different game. So the more you can do that, I think the better off you are. But you can't rely on bureaus because their interest is not in you as a speaker. Their interest is in the success of the event. Yeah. And as long as you recognize the, the client is the event, the conference organizer, not the speaker, then at least you're okay. I want to shift gears for a second. I want to talk a little bit about your presentation, because if you speak on innovation, obviously there's plenty of other speakers that, that speak on that. So I'm curious what you do as a presenter, as a speaker to differentiate yourself and to, uh, and especially again, even as, in your involvement with NSA, you see plenty of speakers that, you know, they, they all kind of, uh, they start to look the same. They look very similar in what they're speaking on or how they're approaching speaking. I know you've done some things to really try to differentiate yourself and stand out from a crowded marketplace. So can you talk us through, like, what do you, do to differentiate yourself as a speaker? I would say there are a few different things that I do that separate me from the other speakers and other innovation speakers. One is I don't give speeches the way most people give speeches. I create experiences and I don't care if it's 5,000 people in an audience. We're going to do something. And this is not gratuitous, you know, interaction of turn to the person next to you and sure. tell them something. I've crafted experiments that are very short very high power, usually funny, where people in a matter of minutes see something about themselves that they just, they, they can't believe is true. And I can do this in a way just because I've been doing it for so long that the audience, like, it's so exciting. I remember I did this one event. It was 2000 people. It was five, six speakers, six top name speakers. I was probably the lowest rung of all the speakers. And I remember seeing afterwards on Twitter, you know, everybody's tweeting, tweeting, tweeting about all the other speakers. And it comes to me and there's very little, but there was one tweet and it said, we stopped tweeting about Stephen because we're so engaged. We don't want to, you know, stop and, you know, participate. Right. That's cool. And that's my goal is because we are distracted by phones and everything else that I want to create an environment where people are on the edge of their seat for as long as I'm up on stage. All right. So you got to tell us more about that. Like, what that looks like and how that plays out. So, because I think there's a lot of speakers who would like to make that claim that I'm, I'm more of a, I, I create an experience for the audience. You know, it's more than just a talking head on stage. So what does that actually look like? Can you give us an example of, of maybe one of the experiments that you do? Sure. I'll give you the most extreme one. Okay. This is to me the most interactive keynote on the planet. It's called personality poker. I've developed a deck of poker cards that basically look like regular poker cards and they have words in them that describe behavioral attributes. And what we'll do is, let's say you've got an event with 500 people. We'll deal out five cards to each person in the audience. And, at, and I'll get up there, and this is before the event, we deal out the cards. And then when I get up on stage, we go through a couple of rounds of trading. And the goal of the, the card game is to get five cards where the words best describe how you see yourself. There's also a portion where we throw literally, you know, it's sort of like 52 card pickup. We will throw hundreds of decks of cards face up on the floor. People are running around on their hands and knees trying to improve their hands and they're giving cards to other people. So not only do you choose cards for yourself, but you're gifting cards to others. So you get to see how you're perceived by others. The energy in the room is just off the charts. And then we go through a process of interpreting and I go into the audience and say, okay, well, who do we have in this group? And then I literally reconfigure the whole room by people having them stand up and the people with all black cards on one side, all red cards on the other side. And we, we go through this process of physically reconstructing the room over and over in a way that people are just 
to me, it's just incredibly fun to do that. So, okay. I'm curious on like the logistics of, of that. So if you have an audience of, I can see how that works with an audience of, let's say a hundred people. If you have an audience of, let's say 5,000 people, how, how does that actually work? Does everybody in the audience have five cards or do you have yeah. cards just all over the, the room? Yeah. So if you have, you know, larger audiences, so in the thousands, many times have the cards in their packet. So okay. like when they register, we'll give them the five cards. So they have the five cards. And then after that, it's pretty easy. We just have people around the room throwing the cards on the floor. That's an easy part. So there's the a little bit part. of prep. That's the fun <laughs> part. But I do look, I do some other exercises that are, are short that don't require that. So there's another one I do with a brick and I walk on stage with a brick and we'll do this exercise. And the point of this exercise is that we always talk about thinking outside the box, but I prove to people with this exercise that actually thinking outside the box leads to lower quality, lower creativity, lower relevancy of the solutions we develop. And it's just a very quick, I mean, it takes literally five minutes to do it, but people will remember that. I mean, years later, I've had people come up to me 10, 15 years later saying, I remember that brick exercise stuck in my mind. So those are the types of things I want to create. Oh, okay. I want to talk more about the brick thing for a second, but I want to come back here to the personality poker. So, so everybody's got the five cards and you're, you're asking people to trade cards and exchange cards and find more cards like themselves, but give cards to other people. So I'm also curious, like in a setting like that, it, there's a fine line where it can be really easy to lose control of the audience. And so you've obviously done this a lot. So I'm sure you've had plenty that have gone really, really well. And some that you've, you know, you've have gone less than well, and you've kind of learned how to best manage that. So any tips or strategies when you're doing a big group interaction like that, where especially where you're getting everyone to stand up and move around or change seats or interact with each other, especially the bigger the audience, the harder it is to keep them engaged and keep them really under control. So anything that you've, you've learned or, or tips or strategies you could share with us as it speaks to that? Yeah, I think the key thing is to, to recognize what you just said is absolutely true. If you don't know what you're doing, it will be a disaster. <laughs> yeah. So I have a number of tricks in my bag that help me get control of the audience. Sometimes it's very simple. So for example, with the trading of the cards, the first time I have Lady Gaga's poker face blasting okay. on the music. And I tell people, you know, when Lady Gaga stops singing, the trading ends, but I know that, that they're not going to stop because they're so excited. The energy in the room is yeah. just off the charts. So there's other ways to get the audience back. I find, even though this is just a, a terrible way, it's the only way that I find consistently works. As I just say to people, before we start trading, it's going to get loud. You're going to get excited. When I want you to stop, I'm just going to go, shh. And when you hear that noise, I want you to stop talking, make the same noise. We'll have a sea of shushes. And then I try to embarrass them. I, say, I, I tell them that I did an event with 500 high school students their teachers and their parents, and they were quiet in four seconds. Don't embarrass yourself by taking longer. And they laugh at that. And, and I then afterwards congratulate them on not being as slow as the, you know, the kids. And right. so we do things to get the audience back. And, and you know, sometimes you just have to have enough different tricks in your bag to be able to do that. I'm imagining, like, I assume several years ago when you've got this idea for this personality poker, you know, this would be cool if we had everybody had a handful of cards and we could exchange cards and we could move around, we could move seats. How do you go from, okay, I have this idea to like actually testing it? Because it's got to be some type of almost low pressure type of a low stakes type of environment where you can do that. You you don't try that on a 5,000 person audience right out of the gate. You know, you want to try it with a smaller audience and just try to feel it out. So how did that work early on for you? Well, I did try it with some larger, not thousands, but hundreds of people uh, in the beginning. And to me, the key with anything as an innovator is to always experiment and to build sort of like the minimal viable product to test it out. So 
in this case, I got the idea. I had a spreadsheet with 40 different words on them that I used to use with my clients for years, but it was a terrible experience people filling out the spreadsheet in the middle of a speech. So I was like, okay, I need to do something different. And I was in Vegas playing blackjack and I got the idea to take the words from my spreadsheet with the four columns and put them on the four suits of the cards. And then I started using the numbers. Then I started using the colors. And so the first version, I literally printed up at Kinko's on cardstock. (laughs) They were terrible cards, but I remember using them and the people in the audience just loved. In fact, I had one CEO write me after it says, I need to play this with my team. I was like, I don't sell this. It's not even (laughs) a product. I just printed them off at a print shop the other day, but I saw the demand for, so I just over time and I kept on improving it, changing the words, doing more scientific testing on it, improving the quality. And, and now we've been doing this for well over a decade and it's uh, pretty much, you know, amazing when it works or it always works, but it's amazing to play it. So logistically, how does that work in terms of just cost? Because there's obviously a hard cost that goes into it. And I assume people can keep the cards. People keep the cards. I never take the cards with me. The cards that are thrown on the floor, it's a pain in the butt to clean them up. I say, if you enjoyed this, go in the back and grab as many cards as you want. Take them home. So the audience cleans up the floor, which is awesome. And I want to do this because my branding's on the cards, my name, my website's on the cards. So when, and people tell me that 10 years later, they've had them posted on their office walls to remind them what better thing could a speaker have than a physical representation of something that you've been doing. Very cool. Interesting. I like that. All right, let's come back to the brick example. Can you tell us more about what's the point or kind of walk us through how you use the brick? What's the point of the story? And then how you connect that to the audience? Sure. So the the brick exercise is I I walk out on stage with a brick. I have a picture of a brick on the slide. And I say, here's what we're going to do. We're going to want people to pair up in the audience. And you're going to have 30 seconds to go back and forth and come up with as many uses of a brick as you possibly can. So the first person might say, uh, use it in a patio if you're missing a brick. Second person might say, use it as a paperweight. First person might get creative, break it in half, use them as bookends. Or the second person might say, throw it at the TV if you lose the remote control. And so I give them 30 seconds. They go off. They go back and forth. And then I run into the audience. And I will, I mean, I've done this with thousands of people. And I'll go into the audience and people will tell me what their uses were. And it's very simple. Then I go back and I say, okay, here's what we just did. The way you found solutions, uses of a brick is the way the brain is wired. We start with what we know about the problem. So when I say, how do we use a brick? Your first thing is, well, what is a brick? Bricks used in construction. Okay, great. So I might think put in a chimney or on a deck. Then we think, okay, it's heavy. So I can weigh things down. It has holes in it. So I could put things in the holes. This, but we start with our past understanding of the problem. So then I said, we're going to do this a second time. This time, same question, how do we use a brick? But this time, you get to use the brick only for a particular context. So for example, if you wanted to use a brick on the body, you could use it to you know, improve your posture if you put it on your head, or you could pump your biceps up, or if you have really rough skin, use it as loof. And I go through that just to give them a, a sense. They say, great, in your pairs, one person will be A, one person will be B. Person A is going to come up with the random context could be in the bathroom, be in the kitchen, on a beach, in a relationship. Person B then has 30 seconds to come up with as many uses of brick as you can. And then I tell them to switch. And they do this. And the point of this is when I ask in the end, I say, okay, which way do you think develop more creative, valuable solutions? The first way, looking at a brick. The second way, looking at a brick for a particular context, or you felt they were the same. And 90% of audiences will choose 
the second method. Yeah. And then I point out to them that that second method is the one with constraints. It's not the think outside the box. The first one is the think outside the box method. It's the second one where we actually put constraints on things. I say constraints are the friends of innovation. Positive constraints actually drive higher levels of innovation. And I use that to launch into how do we ask better questions around innovation. It takes only a matter of minutes, but people will remember the point because they had this visceral shock to themselves by doing it. I like that example. And again, it's a simple thing that from your standpoint, all you need to do is find a brick that you can walk out on stage with. So I'm curious then, uh, how do you find other ideas like that? So if a speaker's listening right now going, okay, you know, here's this story that I tell about, you know, innovation or customer service or sales or leadership or whatever the thing may be. And I'd love to do more than just talk about that, this point for five minutes. I'd love to have something like a brick or some type of physical illustration to make the thing come alive. So how do you go from, all right, let's talk about thinking not outside the box, but within inside the box, within the the, the constraints of it to actually having like a, a physical representation of that and an exercise? Like what, what's that process like for you as you think that through? Well, and to me, the key is just to reverse engineer what I'm, the point is I'm trying to make. So I try to figure out what is it that I'm talking about and then I basically try to construct something. And I don't have a science to it. It's just sort of something which I've learned to do. In some cases, I've actually partnered with other people who have an approach that will serve my purpose. I get permission to use it and it serves my purpose. And then I tweak it and change it because I have a completely different use case for it. So sometimes you can take something, again, with permission, that's out there and say, you know what, even though it was originally making this point, I want to make a completely different point with it. And I can make a very powerful case for that. You know, to me, so like I've worked with people who say, hey, I want to create an experience. They say, great. What's the outcome you're looking to create? Let's look at, and I, I find science is a great place to look. So I read a lot of psychology and, and neuroscience things because I'm always very interested in all the studies that are out there on cognitive biases, which is what a lot of these things point out is yeah. some biases we have. I also study a lot of magic. So magicians construct incredible experiences. Well, I, I actually have woven in a couple of those into some of my speeches, depending on what I'm talking about. And they're not magic tricks. I don't do magic tricks, but I do things that magicians do that demonstrate the fact that the brain can easily be fooled. Interesting. You mentioned the brick, personality poker cards, any other examples that come to mind? I think these are, are helpful to hear those kind of concrete examples. So speakers can be thinking, okay, how does this, how do I, how do I come up with these ideas for myself? So you've got the, the poker cards that inter, people have the opportunity to interact with each other, the brick, which is obviously just you holding it, but they're able to discuss it. Anything else that you do related to those items? There's so many that I do. I mean, it, it, I think that the key is not to get into the specifics of using cards or not using cards, sure. using groups. And it's, it's not even about the props. I mean, it is really about just the setup. So you need to really think not like a speaker, but think about like more of an entertainer when you do these types of things, because you're trying to get people to have a visceral reaction. I did an event when I was at Accenture, and th this is where I sort of got the idea for this. And we had 15 different breakouts at this event. And the rule that I told the people who were developing the breakouts is I said, you're going to create an experience where you lead people down the path where they are convinced they know the answer. And then you're going to pull the rug from out underneath them and show them why 
their original thinking was wrong. So if you can figure out what is the way that most people typically think about a problem and what's the way you want them to think about the problem, you can construct it. We constructed 15 different modules there. So it's not so much about content. It really is about this showing the fallibility. In in my case, a lot of it has to do with just the brain believing one thing to be true when in fact something else is true. Interesting. What Do you do anything with technology to also differentiate yourself? So you've got some of these experiences and these interactions that you do with the audience. Anything that you do in terms of technology to also differentiate yourself as a speaker? Yeah, there's two things that I do with technology. The first one is during the speech itself. So imagine when we're doing personality poker. So I need to start drawing the different suits and the different colors and the different numbers. So Back in the day, I would either use a flip chart, which is great for small groups. If you have an iMag, then it's fine because yeah. then you can you know, project it up. But it never really worked for me because, first of all, once you start drawing on a flip chart, you're turning your back to the audience. You have to be on the stage. And so fortunately, technology has gotten better. So what I do now is my MacBook Pro is connected to the projector, to the screen. And then I wirelessly connect an iPad to my Mac both running Keynote. And when you do this, if you use the iPad as a remote, you're able to do a number of absolutely incredible things. The one that the audience sees is my ability to draw on all the slides. But what's so cool is I can walk into the audience with my iPad in my hand, look someone in the eyes and say, which of these things on this list do you think is the right answer? And then I can underline it or circle it uh, while I'm looking at them. And, and the audience gets to see it. Yeah. And again, so if you're working with a, a large event without an iMag, this is to me the only possible solution. But the other cool advantages to this is that, and this is the things that the audience doesn't see, is I get to see the next slide. So when I'm looking at the iPad, yeah. I see my current slide and my next slide because I customize every speech that I do. So it's never the same. And I know, I'm never 100% sure what the next slide is if I don't see it. But then the, the coolest thing for me as a speaker, and this was the game changer, is I can change the order of the slides on the fly without the audience ever knowing. So if the speaker before me talks too long and I have to cut 15 minutes, there's nothing worse than seeing a speaker get up there and clicking through the slides saying, oh, if I had more time, right, right, right. I would have talked about these. I can basically, on the iPad, see every single slide in my deck and go to any slide I want, again, wirelessly. So it's, it's great. There was one speech that I gave where something happened five minutes before I went on stage where I knew the speech I was about to give was the wrong speech. I literally got up on stage and changed 90% of my content on the fly because in my slide deck, I always have like 100 extra slides after the, the last slide, just in case somebody asks a question if I'm doing a smaller group yeah. or the speaker before me goes short and I need to add more content. So it's just a game changer for me. Interesting. So uh, for people who want to try something like that or look into something like that, is there any particular app or tool or software that you use for that? Just Keynote. That's all it is. Everything's done in Keynote. on the Mac. So you have the slides on the Mac. And then you have the iPad, which you just connect through Wi-Fi or Bluetooth. And there's a number of different ways to do that. And that becomes basically a remote control. And it's so cool. And if you use an iPad Pro, which is what I use, then you can use the Apple Pencil, which is just a great writing experience. So you can get very precise. And it just, sometimes when people come up to me after my speech, 
they're more interested in my technology right. than my content. It's because it, it's it's so it creates a different experience for the audience, and that's what it's about. I've read studies that show when you draw on your slides, the audience retains the content ten percent better than any other form because the audience feels as though it's special. It's happening in the moment. This is not canned, right? And I love it, and it just fits in with my whole thing about creating great experiences. It feels like it's a uh, like a modern day new school version of like an overhead projector. <laughs> I used to use those. I used to use those, and this is like modern day, so much better. I really think for me this was it was great. And then the other technology that I use, yeah is not on the stage, but off the stage. One of the things which I've realized is that it's great to give a speech, but people are busy. They forget things. There's other speakers. They forget you know, the, the next speaker. Now, all of a sudden, what I talked about starts slowly getting pushed out of their head. So I created something that I call the 30-Day Innovation Challenge, which is a, an, a mobile game that lasts for 30 days. And basically, when I walk off the stage, everybody in the audience will get a text message or an email with a question about something that I asked during my speech, something I talked about during my speech. And they get points based on how accurately and how quickly they respond. When they get the right answer, up pops a one-minute video of me explaining why that was the right answer and the other ones were wrong. And there's a leaderboard. And we do this every day for 30 days. And at the end of the 30 days, the winner is declared. And clients love this because they've been telling me we've been trying to get people engaged after an event and they get busy. We have 95% of busy executives participating each and every day for 30 days with this Hmm. because it's fun. It's short. It's designed to be played while you're waiting in line at Starbucks and it's a competition with prizes and bragging rights. And it's really, really cool. And so it's just a, it's a, it's an app that they would download. Basically, but it's not an app. We we decided the whole app thing would be too complicated, so we created as sort of an HTML5 okay. mobile responsive website is the best way to think about it. And so, how do you get the email address and the the or the the cell phone number for everybody in the audience? So there's a, a two different ways that we register people. If it's a larger event and the event organizer wants us to get people pre-registered, we will load. They will give us a, just a spreadsheet with everybody's email, and we'll load up the emails. We don't load up text messages. That's illegal. We can't load up phone numbers and send text messages unsolicited. There's big fines associated with that. But email, we do that. So they will give us the list. In some cases, like the event I'm doing tomorrow, they're not going to give us the list. So what we do is we basically, when I'm on stage for like 30 seconds, really, or two minutes, I talk about the 30-Day Innovation Challenge. We just have a printout with a link to a website. And all they do is they go to stephenshapiro.com slash whatever. And, And if it's a client I do a lot of work with, I buy a special domain for them. And they just go to there and they register, they put in their name, their email address and phone number if they want. And it takes them a matter of seconds. And then what's cool is if you're doing this over, I don't do a lot of full day sessions. Most of mine are speeches, but if I do a full day session, like one of my clients uh, who I built this for in mind, because I've been working with them for five years, doing a day long event every month for them, we would at the first break, get everybody to register and answer the first question. When they come back from the break, we show the leaderboard. Uh-huh. We have a time. So the second question comes at lunchtime, come back from lunch, the leaderboard. We do this the third time at the afternoon break. So by the time that they leave, they are primed and programmed to want to participate. And we get the highest participation rates in those situations because they're really just so engaged before we leave the event. And it's, it's, it's really just so cool. 
So it's not necessarily like a, a universal leaderboard. It's basically for that specific event or that specific yes. group. And so you may have a bunch of these running concurrently, basically. And we do. Yes, we always have multiple ones running, but you're only competing against the people in your audience. And it starts on a date and it ends 30 days later. And then what's really cool is the 31st question, which we give them points for, is an evaluation. What did you think of this? And give us your comments. And so when we're done, we get these great reviews that we then send off to the client saying, by the way, in addition to the winner, and we always give prizes to the winner, here's the feedback that we got. And clients love that. And so it, for me, it's just, you know, I, I think about what we do as speakers and we think too much about the event rather than the desired outcome. And yeah. the desired outcome is a shift in behavior and beliefs and, and knowledge. And it's great to do that in 45 minutes, but it's tough to do that in 45 minutes and have it last. Yeah. So if I'm like most speakers listening right now, they're like, all right, dude, I got to see this. So do you got like a demo or a dummy version that we could go to that's not going to screw up some existing challenge that's happening right now? Well, if you go to 30dayinnovationchallenge.com, okay. there's a video there where you can get to see it. I mean, I can't create an environment where people can play with it because again, everybody starts at the same time yeah. and ends at the same time. So that gets a little complicated. But if you go to 30dayinnovationchallenge.com, you'll see a, it's a crappy little video I put together, just a screen cam, but it it will give you a sense of how it works. And, and the point that I make to people is do not get seduced by the technology that I'm using. It's That's not my point. Yeah, I've had situations before I had this where we created experiences that lasted after the event because I just think it's important to reinforce the message. And you could do it as simply if you have a Weber or you know some other type of system, you could easily just create 31-minute videos. You don't have to have a game. Yeah. We've had situations where it's not even technology. There's a competition. One company, we had them, we had a competition to see who could design the best iPhone app. This is for a mobile phone company. Designed the best iPhone app, and then it would get submitted, and there would be a competition to see which of those iPhone apps got the most downloads. So there's so many different ways you can do these things to keep people engaged mentally and physically. Interesting. Well, Stephen, man, we appreciate so much uh, you sharing these uh, examples and these insights and wisdom that you've uh, learned over the years. So if people want to find out more about you, uh, where can we go? SteveShapiro.com is the easiest place. If you go there, you will find me. Awesome. Thanks, man. We appreciate the time. Thank you, Grant. Appreciate it. All right, there you go. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Stephen Shapiro. If you uh, you like that poker idea, you like some of the technology ideas that he mentioned there, definitely stop by and check out 30dayinnovationchallenge.com. 3030dayinnovationchallenge.com. Also, you can check out Stephen's site, stephenshapiro.com. Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N, Shapiro, S-H-A-R-P-I-R-O, stephenshapiro.com. But a lot of great stuff from Stephen, so I appreciate you tuning in and joining us today. Hey, uh, hey, again, if you if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Would you do that? Subscribe to the podcast, share it with someone else, leave us a rating and review, all those things for the shows that you like and you love. We hope that this is one of them, but uh, either way, we appreciate you hanging out with us and, and uh, making us part of your day. We'll catch you next time, my friend. You're awesome. Awesome.